you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to 1 Peter chapter 4. And this morning and this evening, I'm going to be preaching on the subject, How to Live in the Last Days. And this morning we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The words of the Apostle Peter, as he speaks to those of yesterday, the words of the Apostle Peter as he speaks to those of us today. The Bible is a living book. What he said then is just as true now. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. Above all things have a fervent love among yourselves, for such love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grumbling or griping. As every man has received a spiritual gift, may he so minister the same gift one to another as good stewards or managers of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man serve, let him do it with the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I call your attention to the first part of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Our world is swiftly rapidly headed toward a climatic ending. The sand in the hourglass of time is about to run out. According to a group of scientists who maintain what's called the doomsday clock, it is 11.57 p.m. We are three minutes away in their estimation from a global catastrophe. Now, these statements that I'm making to you should be of no surprise if you're a Bible-believing Christian. Because the Bible that you hold in your hand has thousands of references concerning the coming of Jesus Christ and the conditions that will be in the world leading up to his return. As I stand before you this morning, all of the prophetic pieces that go into the prophetic puzzle are just about in place. There needs to be a little tweaking, a little adjusting, but by and large, all the signs that the prophets and the apostles and Christ himself gave us are now here. And we are waiting on the last seven years of history. In those seven years, we're going to see the rapture of the church. Up, up, and away we shall go. We're going to see the coming of the Antichrist, Satan, Superman, the last world dictator. We're going to see the coming of the false prophet, that sinister minister of religion, 
that will lead the world into deception and damnation. We're going to see the long-foretold new world order come to place. A one-world government, a one-world church, a one-world economic system. We're going to see the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to see World War III. We're going to see Satan's final attempt to annihilate the Jewish race and exterminate the nation of Israel. We're going to see the glorious return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we are standing on the threshold of all of that occurring. The end is at hand. And if you believe that, and I believe that, and I believe most of us do, may we drive shallow stakes into the ground of this world, because soon we're going home. But before we go home, we have responsibility. Before we go home, we've got business to tend to. Before we go home, we have certain conducts that we need to implement in our life. We're not to just be sky gazers looking for Jesus. We're not just to be sign watchers looking for signs. We're to be doing the master's work until he calls us home. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to see some things that we're to be doing. The amazing thing about God's word is it's so simple, yet it's so profound. And it's so profound, yet it's so simple. Notice what Peter instructs those of his day, what's he instructing us to do of today, as we see the end coming. In verse 7 he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be you, who's you, point at you. That's you. Just want to make sure. Because sometimes when we preach, we think we're preaching to somebody else. We're preaching to you. Peter says, be you sober and watch unto prayer. As the end draws near, number one thing we need to do is we need to pray seriously. Not pray casually. Not pray intermittently. We're to pray seriously. Now that word prayer in verse 7, in most translations, is translated singular. But the actual word is, from the original language, is plural. What Peter is saying is, as you see the coming of the Lord drawing near, as you see the final days of history coming, you ought to be praying many prayers. Not just one prayer, singular, but many prayers, plural. You should have a public prayer life. You should have a private prayer life. You should have a time of prayer where you pray by yourself in your holy place, where you get alone with God and cast your cares upon Him. You need to have a prayer time with others in corporate situations, 
You're to have a prayer time at home. You're to have a prayer time away from home. You're to pray prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication. Some of your prayers will be short, some of them will be long, some will be joyful, some will be tearful. But the idea is, as the coming of the Lord draws near, our prayer life should intensify. It should increase. Instead of being stressed out and consumed with fear with everything that's going on, we need to find peace and confidence and control from prayer. That's what that word sober means. When we think of sober, we think of somebody not intoxicated. But that doesn't know what the word means here. What the word means here is to have your mind and heart right. Right. No matter what's going on around you that's wrong, your mind and your heart are right. Because they're in the right place on the right person. And he gives you peace and confidence. Instead of praying in a fog, instead of praying without a clue, we're to pray with awareness, with the sensitivity of what's happening. That's what that word watch means. What Peter is saying is, in the last days, pray many prayers. Receive God's peace. Receive God's joy. Receive God's hope. Do not allow the circumstances and situations that are going on around you make you be afraid. Pray. Because one day the clock, the doomsday clock, is going to strike midnight. And it's all going to be over. Know this in your mind. Watch. Keep this in your heart. Be sober and keep this in prayer. Pray over what you see taking place. It's interesting to me that although we all shake our head and amen things like this, we don't do it. If there was ever a time when the church of Jesus Christ corporately and those who make up the church individually need to be on their knees, it's today. And yet we've allowed distractions, we've allowed fear, we've allowed panic to enter in, and we get caught up in other things. There's many well-meaning people, maybe you're one of them, and I'm not knocking you if this is the way you are, but I just want you to know that we have many well-meaning people who believe that what we see going on we have to prepare for by cashing in all of our money into gold that we have to go join a militia. We need to buy an arsenal. You know, go get an Apache helicopter and a B-52. We got to move to the woods or go to the desert. We got to fight the system. We got to stock up on supplies. We need to have enough groceries in a hidden place to last for 20 years. We need to vote for some candidate that might be a little extreme. Listen, you might want to do all of that, but that's panic. As we see the end coming, and it's coming, instead of panicking, we need to be a people of prayer. We need to receive God's peace, have God's hope, have God's joy. 
even though we see everything we hold near and dear collapsing around us. We know a better day lies ahead. It is well with our soul. John 3.16 ought to be an important verse to you. But equally important should be Jeremiah 33.3. Call upon the Lord and he will answer you. And he will show you great and mighty things you could never know. Another translation, he will do for you great and mighty things you can never do. As I've said so many times, you probably get tired of hearing it. It's a broken record, but that's okay. If I'm going to be a one-song preacher, this is a good song to sing. That word call upon the Lord, that word call means invite. The Lord Jesus doesn't come where he's not invited. Invite the Lord Jesus. And he will see and he will hear you. And he will come. And he will come with his wisdom, his omniscience. He will come with his power, his omnipotence. And he will come into those situations and circumstances you can't figure out and you can't handle. And he will for his glory. It's not a matter of thrival, it's a matter of survival. We've got to become a people of prayer. So as we see the coming of the Lord drawing near, as we see the world as we know it coming to a close, we need, number one, to pray seriously. Verse 8 and 9, number 2, we need to love passionately. <coughs> Above all things. In other words, this does not take a back seat to anything. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Interesting, he didn't say for those out there, although we should love people outside the church. He says we should have a fervent love for those of us here. Interesting, he would say that to the church. Have a fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Love. Why would Peter stress love passionately as the end draws near and the coming of Christ looms? Because one of the signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, one of the signs that he said would be indicative of the world just before he returns would be that the love of many will turn cold. The love of many shall wax cold, is the King James Version of it. That you will find yourself in a world that has no love. You will find yourself, sadly perhaps, in a church that has no love. And yet he says, of all the things you can have, Love is the most important. It's above everything. Do you know that love is the greatest virtue? If you and I could choose what virtues we want to possess, do you know that there is none greater than love? Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Do you know that 
love is the greatest commandment? Jesus Christ was asked to capsulize and summarize the entire Bible. Can you imagine that? The religious leader said, Jesus, take the entire Bible and tell us what it says in two sentences. <laughs> and Jesus said, I'll be glad to. Love the Lord thy God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and then you love others as you love yourself. And when you do that, you've made the cross. <coughs> love is the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest commandment. Love is the greatest motivation. Why do you witness? Why do you worship? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do I do that? If it's not out of love, it won't last. The Apostle Paul said, it is my love for God that compels me to do what I do. You know that love is the greatest evidence that you're truly born again. If your mind is a headquarters for hate, you need to check your salvation. Because it was Jesus who said, by this love, men shall know that you're my disciples. By this love you have for one another. Peter says in the last days, love will be very important. Pray seriously, but love passionately. I want you to notice what kind of love he's talking about. He says fervent love. Now that word fervent is an interesting word. Let me draw some pictures, if I may, of that word for you. The word fervent, if I was to draw you a picture, would be the picture of a racehorse. A thoroughbred, a stallion, a magnificent animal. And this animal is racing toward the finish line, maybe like Secretariat. And just before this racehorse gets to the finish line, he is stretching himself. His legs, his front legs are stretched as far as they will extend frontward. His back legs are extended as far as they will go backward. He's got everything in him stretching extending toward the finish line. It would also picture someone who's drowning. And you're in a lifeboat, and you've got your hand out, stretching to reach their hand as they're going underwater. You're grasping, you're pulling, trying to reach them. It would also picture trying to lift weights. And you got it up to here. Now you got to get it over your head. Got to have a little oomph uh, to get it up. That's what the word fervent is. It's a full extension of love. It's a, a stretching grasp of love. It's a, an exerted push of love. In other words, it's love to the extreme. Not just talk love, but love carried out in conduct to the extreme. And he says this kind of love will draw the world to the church. This kind of love will hold the church together. You know why? Because it forgives. Do you notice it says, for love shall cover the multitude of sins? He's talking about 
this word cover means forgive. It doesn't say that we excuse people who do wrong. We don't duck or deny that people do wrong. We don't let somebody off the hook who does wrong. It doesn't even mean we'll be the best of buddies with them if they do wrong. But what it does mean is we forgive them. We forgive them. We, we, we do not allow their faults and their flaws and their failures and their frustrations directed against us to change us or to create disorder and division in us or around us. When we can forgive, unity, harmony, camaraderie, and peace will always prevail. Do you know why so many homes are in turmoil? Because there can't, there's no forgiveness. Do you know why many churches today are like the Hatfields and McCoys? Fighting all the time? Because they can't forgive. When you can forgive with a love that will stretch you, that will, that will extend you, that will exert you, that's loving people like Jesus loved. Do you understand what forgiveness is? Forgiveness says, I'm not going to dwell on what was said or done to me. It doesn't say I won't remember, because you will remember. It doesn't mean there won't be times it will float in a little bit. But you're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to sit there and stew on it. Forgiveness means I'm not going to talk about the matter anymore. I'm not going to run over to Bob and tell him, I'm not going to run over to Sally and tell her. I'm not going to keep stirring the pot of the stew. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. It's over. And if I've got to talk about it, it will be with God. And I'm not going to allow it to affect me no more. I'm not going to allow it to keep me from going home if I'm mad at somebody there. I'm not going to allow it to keep me from coming to church if it's taking place in the church. I'm not going to allow it to affect my life or my worship. That's what forgiveness is. I'm not going to dwell on it, I'm not going to talk about it, and it's not going to affect me anymore. I'll walk on. You say, Pastor, that's hard. Yeah, you got it. You see, love's not always sweet. Sometimes love is sweat. Sometimes love is perspiration. Sometimes love is exerting yourself, stretching yourself, extending yourself. Love. Have a love that forgives. There's not one single person in this place that has not been hurt before by what somebody has said or done. If you raise your hand and say, well, I have it, your day's coming. Okay? We're all going to get it. How we handle it is what's important. Because as we so learn to forgive this way, he forgives that way. But also there's something else that goes with this love. Not just fervent forgiveness, but also notice hospitality. 
Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. You see, the world in the last days is not only going to lack love, therefore lack forgiveness, but the world's also going to lack hospitality. Hospitality goes beyond friendliness. Hospitality is not only welcoming somebody, but it's accepting somebody, wanting somebody, needing somebody, allowing that somebody to come into your comfort zone, into your clique. It talks about inclusion. Now, there's many churches that are friendly, but not many churches are hospitable. A friendly church will shake your hand when you come in. A friendly church will show you to a seat when you come in. A friendly church will tell you they're glad to have you when they speak to you. A friendly church will pat you on the back and say, please come back. Friendly churches. Most churches do that to a degree. But he didn't say be friendly. He said be hospitable. What's the difference? Hospitality just doesn't shake somebody's hand. They ask them their name. Hospitality just doesn't take them to a seat, but it notices that they're by themselves. They can sit with somebody we know or they can sit with us. They're not going to sit alone by themselves. We're going to find somebody they can be seated with. It's not just about hugging their neck and tell them to please come back. It's about telling them all the opportunities where you would like them to join you. You have a Sunday school class. Would you come join my Sunday school class? You have a small group. You're invited to my small group. You have a discipleship class. You're having a donut social. They can come and have a donut. In other words, it's breaking down the barriers of comfort zones and cliques and saying, you can come into my zone and you can be part of my clique. Church doesn't always do good at that. The bars do a wonderful job at it. You will never see a bar without people because bars do exceptionally well at making their clientele feel welcome. Most bartenders know everybody's name that comes in. Most people in bars will talk to everybody who comes in. Most people in bars will include all of those who come in and learn about their family and their friends and get to know them. The television show Cheers was a hit because people related to that. A place that I can go where somebody cares enough to know my name and know something about me and let me into their zone and into their clique. Hospitality. And I'm challenging you and me to do a better job of that at Miles Road. Not one single person should ever come into your zone that you don't know, that you don't personally speak to, learn their name, try to find out something about them, how you can serve them, and invite them to be part of something that you're part of. Hospitality, the world knows nothing about it. And when the church practices it, the church becomes a magnet that draws people in.
Forgiveness, the world knows nothing about it, but when the church forgives, the world is drawn to the church. And it all comes out of love. If you can't love, you can't forgive, and if you can't love, you will never be hospitable. And then lastly, notice in verse 10 and 11, we are to give graciously. Pray seriously. We're to pray seriously. We're to love fervently, passionately, and give graciously. As every man has received the gift. Now he's speaking of a spiritual gift here. Even so minister the same one to another as good managers or stewards of the grace of God that gave you that gift. If any man has a speaking gift, let him speak the word of God. If any man have a serving gift, let him do it with it according to his ability as God has given Why do we have the gifts? That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, who alone deserves praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If I may, let me detour for just a second and talk a little bit about what happens when you get saved. By the way, if you're not saved, you need to get saved. You need to get saved. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to invite Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you of those sins and change you and transform you and give you a place in heaven. But when you get saved, the third member of the Holy Trinity, the Spirit of the living God, does some wonderful things instantaneously in you. The moment you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells you. God will no longer be with you, by you, around you. He comes inside of you. Your body becomes a church, a temple, a tabernacle, a holy of holies, if you will. And there in your being lives the third member of the Holy Trinity, the Spirit of the living God. He indwells you. Not only does He indwell you, He seals you. He puts a spiritual tattoo on you that says, property of Christ Jesus forever. And then he baptizes you into the body of Christ. One, all of us become part of a family, a universal family. Christ is the head and we're the rest of the body. We're baptized into the universal body of Christ. And then we're gifted. The Spirit of God does not come empty-handed. He brings with him spiritual gifts. At least one, sometimes more. Sometimes they're white collar, sometimes they're blue collar. Sometimes they're gifts from the neck up, sometimes they're gifts from the neck down. But these are gifts that the Spirit of God gives according to his own choice. You can't pray for them, you can't ask for them, you can't trade for them, you can't buy them. He comes and gives them as he chooses. And with those gifts, we're to encourage one another, exhort one another, edify one another, and evangelize the lost. If you're a Christian here today, you have at least one gift, you might have more. And we're called to use those gifts, not store them away. We're called to use those gifts in the local church. 
We're called to use those gifts for the glory of God and for the good of others. Not for our gain, not for our gratification, not for our glory. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about others. And that's why we were given the gifts, and we use those gifts. And when we use those gifts in those ways, God is glorified, others are done good, and we make a difference for eternity. Okay? You got that? In other words, we're, we're to serve. We're to serve. Sometimes we think of giving as all being about pulling money out of our pocket. And financial giving is important. But ladies and gentlemen, sometimes it's easy just to write a check and throw it in the plate. Then you don't have to worry about anything else. Giving is also of yourself. We're to give financially, but we're to give of ourself using the gifts that God has given us. I wonder why he would stress that. You ever ask questions, why would Peter stress that? He says the end of history comes, and it's coming quickly. As the signs of the times are being fulfilled, as Jesus appearing is drawing ever so near, he says you need to pray seriously. Spend a lot of time on your knees. You need to love passionately. Because there won't be a whole lot of love out there, nor any forgiveness or hospitality to go with it. So if people are going to find it, they'll have to find it right here. And then you have to give graciously of yourself. Why would he say that? Because the world in the last days is going to be filled with narcissistic people whose favorite words will be me, my, and mine. People who will be selfish. People who will be prideful. People who will believe they don't need to come to church. Who will believe that when they do come to church, they ought to be recognized and rewarded and a plaque put on the wall for them. People who will believe it's all about me. Isn't it all about me? It's what you think, isn't it? (laughs) We got people today in the church who believe the sun rises and sets on them. Service like Jesus served. Service on a bended knee, washing the feet of disciples. Service on a cross where he shed his blood and died for our sins. That kind of service. Not selfie service. Jesus service. Click of the Savior. Pray seriously, love passionately, give graciously. You'll be in good standing when Jesus comes again. Nathan Hale, many of you who know Revolutionary War history know that he was an American spy. He spied on the British and he was caught. The penalty for spying in that day was a scaffold would be built in your honor. A noose would be put around your neck as your reward, and you would be hung. As Nathan Hale was being led to the scaffold by the British, 
just before the noose would be put around his neck and the floor would drop out and he would be hung and he would die. He was asked if he had any final words. And his words, though simply spoken, would echo through history. My only regret, he said, is I have but one life to give to my country. I have only one regret. I just have one life to give to my country. Ladies and gentlemen, we only have one life. May our life not be a regret. May we give that life to a Savior, to a King, and to a kingdom that's coming. That it will be well with us on Judgment Day. Heads are bowed and eyes are